0: listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast, Episode 45, Interview with Kevin Shrek, Director of the Documentary, Persistence of Vision. You're listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, Don Bluth, and everything in between. My name is Chelsea Robson.
1: Uh, And I'm Mason Smith, sorry.
0: We're so glad to have you today. Um, This is going to be a special episode. Mason has just had an incredible opportunity to interview the director of our last podcast. We talked about The Persistence of Vision. It's a documentary. It's on the film festival circuit right now, and it's just getting a lot of buzz. Really cool, really cool film. But he had the opportunity to sit down and, and talk with him. So we're excited to let you guys in on this really awesome interview.
1: Yeah, let's uh, let's start it. Let's put it in the VCR and press play.
0: The thing with the thief that I'm just trying to do, what they call a masterpiece. When you when you master a medium in the old days, if you were a master painter, then you did your masterpiece. Well, this is an old-fashioned. I've I've mastered this medium at last, and I'm going to do a masterpiece. I hope if I can ever finish the thing. He wanted to create. The greatest animation film of all time.
2: But it didn't
0: happen. It was this building in London with these people working in it that were going to save the art of animation and take it beyond.
1: All right, fellow animation addicts. Today, uh, while we're recording this, we're actually releasing the Thief in the Cobbler episode uh, that we recorded last week. And we are super excited about that because... Uh, a, a, the Thief and the Cobbler is like a really awesome, interesting film. Um, but when we juxtapose that with watching the documentary, The Persistence of Vision, it it kind of made it all like come together, and it was really cool. And, and it really, well, we'll get into that in a second. How how awesome the documentary is, but uh, we actually have a special treat for y'all. We managed to get a hold of the director and producer of The Persistence of Vision. And so today we're going to have a special interview. I, I want to say that we're interviewing with Shrek, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's actually Kevin Shrek out of Brooklyn. He he is the director for the Persistence of Vision, and we're super excited to have him on the show. How are you doing, Kevin?
2: I am doing just fine. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you. We're super excited because, as you know, as the animation like nerds that we are, we really appreciated the documentary. For, it, first of all, great job oh, on thank the you. film.
2: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, really well put together. We really enjoyed watching it, and like I said, it really enhanced like our viewing of The Thief and the Cobbler because um, I think you'd agree, Like, if you just go on Netflix and like watch it not knowing the history and not knowing what it, it was and what it could have been, <laughs> um, you're not likely to appreciate it. Sure. As if you had watched the documentary or, or, or learned some history about the film and about Richard Williams. By way of introduction, I have pulled up your resume on the mm-hmm. official website, and so I'm going to just share a little highlights uh, as if as if I was going to hire you for a job, and then I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, documentary filmmaker, and as I I just uh, announced, uh, director and producer of *The uh, Persistence of Vision*, and uh, you're an intern at DreamWorks Animation. Awesome.
2: Well, I was I was a few years ago. Yes, you yeah. were
1: a few years ago. Okay, cool. Well, awesome, and. Um, Again, congratulations on the film. And congratulations on, um, you know, it says you were official selection on, on a lot of international film festivals. And, um, you know, the, you got to work with uh, recording the interviews with various animators. Um, and so your background is, uh, is film, right?
2: Yeah, basically. I mean, I kind of lean towards documentaries, but that's, you know, that's kind of what I've always been gravitating towards pretty much my whole life, really, is, is film, I guess.
1: Yeah, awesome. Uh, I dug up a little new story about your stop motion videos uh, way back.
2: <laughs> yeah, awesome. yeah.
1: Awesome. And so and so stop motion would be considered animation now. You're also yes. you're also interested in in animation. So, you're a documentary filmmaker. What kind of animation experience or background do you have?
2: Well, not enough to call myself an animator, that's for sure. Um, I feel like that's a really privileged um, or you know, it's it's a that's a name you have to earn. Um, <laughs> but I love, but I love animation, um, and uh, always have. I mean, obviously, some of my first introductions to film were through animated films. Um, right. And um, I think what I love about animation is that um, you know, it's a medium in which, in theory, you can have control over all the aspects, but that means you have a lot of responsibility to do that, which again means that you have a lot of. Um, you know everything has to be very specifically put together even more so than um other forms of filmmaking you know the the whole design of it the movement the performance of characters the music uh the color schemes uh everything really and you know the you know whether it's computer generated or traditional hand drawn or stop motion or with paint or meat or sand or whatever you know or pins so what I have done with animation is mostly just a few stop motion things in the past. And, um, actually that's kind of how I got more aware of Richard Williams in an academic sense was studying his book as a teenager, because he helped make my, you know, my otherwise completely ignorant and terrible little movies into something that's somewhat watchable studying his book, uh, cause he is the best. And, uh, that book is just essential. Okay, awesome.
1: So, um I, w- I would agree also that animation is a great springboard for anyone um to to be interested in film um because, you know, as children those are usually like the most dynamic and like memorable films mm-hmm. um that we come into contact to Really cool. Awesome. So, this isn't really on the on the questions we sent you, but what we do when we have like a new person on the show, we do this little segment called catch and fire and it's like a rapid fire kind of question. Thing it, it's 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 supposed to be fun and so um, just to kind of get to know you a little better we're gonna I'm gonna ask you some questions and then you just answer the first thing that comes into your head you know as quickly as you can okay
2: you're
0: a great marksman Derek one of the best it takes more than good aim it takes courage that's my forte well then how about a quick round of catch and fire. Catching fire, you mean me? You're the only one with enough courage.
1: Okay, first question: What was the first animated movie you remember seeing? Bambi. Favorite cartoon growing up?
2: Character or film? Film. A cartoon show.
1: Um, maybe the Looney Tunes. Favorite animated movie.
2: Either fan like in ever probably Fantasia or Nightmare Before Christmas.
1: Uh, favorite <clears throat> animator slash artist.
2: Um, hmm, that's hard to say. Maybe Richard Williams. All right. For animator, for animator at least. Artist, it's hard to say. Cool. Seems relevant. Richard Williams.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, classic animation or CGI.
2: Oh, uh, classic animation definitely
1: hand drawn definitely. Okay, cool. Yeah.
2: Favorite animation studio. Oh, uh like working today or just ever? Um jeez I don't know. Um I guess maybe the old Warner Brothers Termite Terrace is kind of interesting and because of all the personalities there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Alright. So right now Disney or Pixar?
2: Um right now. I guess Pixar, they've they've got a great track record. Yeah, they really do. Yeah. Uh
1: Leica or Studio Ghibli?
2: Oh Leica, yeah.
1: Disneyland or Disney
2: World? I've never been to World, but there's a part of me that feels kind of grossed out by World, probably because it's built on top of a bunch of beautiful wetlands, Um, (laughs) whereas Disneyland was just destroying, you know, desert. But um, I don't know. It's a a different sort of natural resource. I'm just biased. Uh, um, Disneyland. I've been there a couple times. I I like it. I admit I like Disneyland.
1: Now, as far as characters go, Stitch or Tinkerbell? Stitch. Uh, Mickey, Goofy, or, or Donald? uh donald songs in film or no songs
2: depends on the film i if it's if you're gonna do a musical go all the way like with nightmare before christmas make it an operetta if you're just gonna have three or four stupid pop songs don't even bother
1: all right you hear that miramax with thief in the Cobbler? anyway <laughs> um okay more characters who would win jafar
2: or zigzag in what sort of a duel are we talking here
1: uh, just if they were fighting and using their powers to destroy each <laughs> other. Powers.
2: Zigzag doesn't really have any powers. That's why it's so funny. I'd go with. I think Jafar would have, Would probably kick his ass. I'm well, well, zig- yeah.
1: <laughs> well, zigzag can. Zigzag can control people, though they may seem complex.
2: It appears that way. Did, yeah. did you even watch yeah. the
1: film, Kevin? <laughs>
2: I'm just, just kidding. I've heard of it.
1: all right so Jafar I would agree also zigzag for as awesome as he is he he doesn't he seems pretty light on the powers
2: but that's why I like zigzag because he's 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 a I don't know he's a goofball he's he's not really this um, a menace per se he really is I said
1: it in the I said it in the podcast last week but I didn't even realize he had extra fingers until I saw the documentary
2: (laughs) oh yeah extra fingers extra joints extra you know everything it's just just to make it more complex the reverse of four digits on every hand you
1: know the guy the guy is nuts and yeah. going on a little tangent a little zigzag tangent here i really think his character design is more interesting than jafar's mm-hmm. but uh jafar as a as a whole i think is a more respectable villain
2: <laughs> well he's tougher yeah
1: all right last question oh and, and chelsea made, made the comment who's more evil of the two zigzag or
2: jafar hmm. i think jafar manages to be a bit more evil so jafar
1: yeah, yeah. Zigzag's always smiling. He gets well, really angry he gets really angry a couple times.
2: Well, I mean, but he delights in being bad, which Jafar also does, but Jafar is also better at it because he has these powers. Um so he's more of a t- your typical villain that way. So I guess he's a bit more evil.
1: He also has a more competent evil bird companion.
2: Uh Jafar does? Yeah, Iago. Yeah. Well, they have a funny I mean like, you know, they have a funny relationship it's you know when they when they like laugh about the same thing or something it's just yeah. it's weird it's like it's like they're old roommates or something it's kind of funny
1: <laughs> i guess when jafar went to like evil school or, or wherever you go in the disney <laughs> exactly. universe they it were probably
2: roommates. is something like that yeah it probably yeah, that's a pretty like
1: that. you know that's a pretty that's a pretty solid theory i bet they were roommates i'd be surprised yeah last question crappy disney sequels which do you prefer hunchback of notre dame 2 return of jafar or cinderella 2
2: you know, I only saw Return of Jafar. Um, I don't remember hating it, but I haven't seen it in ages since I was like seven or something. So
1: That makes two of us, yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: I don't know. I guess Return of Jafar. Excellent. 52 out of 52. Well done, Derek. Extraordinary courage, man. Just think one inch lower, and that arrow would have...
1: Well, hey, thanks for participating in Catch and Fire, our exciting segment when we meet new people. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the Rotoscopers. We ask the tough questions that other podcasts right. are, are afraid to ask. <laughs> now, um, like I said, the documentary is just it's just awesome. Um, why did you choose the title, The Persistence of Vision?
2: Well, um... It's kind of a double entendre, so as soon as I realized it, I was like, "Okay, I'm sticking with this." Because uh, naming coming up with titles is not exactly my forte, but as soon as I thought of that, it's like, "Okay, this is this is pretty good," also, and uh, it stuck with me just because it seemed to keep working. I mean, part of it is a reference to this old um, belief um, that uh, there's this phenomenon of the eye in which you know. Uh, there's an afterimage that lingers or persists in the retina, in the brain for a moment. And so you can have successive independent images um, played at a a rapid speed in front of you. And as a result, because of this afterimage that lingers uh, um, a connection will be made. And so an illusion of movement will be uh, perceived. Um, And then the other side of that double entendre is just a a more direct obvious reference to um richard williams own ambitions i mean you know toiling away on a a, a passion project for nearly three decades um you know and, and having this you would have to have an immense amount of determination and persistence to pull off even part of such a massive project
1: yeah definitely cool thanks for thanks for clarifying that First of all, you you definitely minimize minim, uh, minimize your presence as a director in the film, um, you know besides editing and and um, adding titles and stuff sure. um, you really don 't see any of you in the documentary, and I really like it when documentary uh, filmmakers do that because it obviously it leads it leaves the audience to uh, digest and and make their own views and and Good. kind of entertain it, uh, understand it for themselves. And yeah. so I made the mistake of saying that um that uh, persistence of vision was just like a compilation of of stock footage and interviews when you actually did interviews you know with the the animator crew that was with So tell us about the work you did bringing it all together like all the stock footage you know all the all the interviews how how was that experience for you
2: Well I don't remember the exact number we had something this is quite a, a broad range, I realize, but we have something like 70 to 100 hours or 70 to 90 hours of footage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vast majority of that were the original interviews that we shot with these animators and other artists who worked with Richard Williams uh, and at his studio and on The Thief and the Cobbler. Um, you know, Really, it's all about constructing a narrative. When you have that much footage and if you are going to simply make a compilation, then you just wind up with you know, the greatest hits from 80 or so hours of material. Um, but that doesn't really work to make a single film or cohesive narrative. Um, so, you know, we had this archival stuff that were from a few, maybe like four or five television documentaries that were shot from 1966 until 1989. And we had a lot of uh, animation, pencil tests and rough animation, and storyboards and work print and um you know, other goodies like that, Um, you know, a lot of different visual ephemera. And, of course, the majority being the interviews. So, you know, basically what you do with when you have all this content is once you've shot it, you transcribe everything. Um, And I was a bit meticulous, so I would even go down to, like, you know, repetitions of certain syllables or ums and urs just to make make sure everything is there and I'm um, just documenting everything that's said, basically. So then you have these separate independent scripts, basically. And then from those separate scripts, you kind of have to figure out, you storyboard it out and figure out, okay, what are the topics, what are the themes that we need to cover that are essential to telling this narrative? Sort of, you know, flashcards or whatever. And um, from there, with with that template as, as a guide, a blueprint for the movie, um, you can rough out. You know, the runtime of it and what topics you're covering and then use that to go back to the transcripts and figure out, OK, so-and-so is, is probably the best at describing this or they have an interesting anecdote or an important story that really illustrates this point. And so from all of these separate sources, you eventually distill it down to one script. Uh, and that's really when the authorship comes in. You're already editing at that point, basically, and pulling it all together. Um, and, you know, it, 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 like, yeah, that is a huge project. But it was never – I never felt, oh, God, we have to do the tedious crap, I mean, of sifting through all this. I mean, that's why I was interested in it, in in researching it. So the storyline, the whole narrative arc, you know, it wasn't too difficult to find. It's there. Uh, It's a really compelling story already. And so my job was just, you know, as best I could to um, bring it all in from – this useful information that we had and these very engaging personalities in the interviews and, uh, and everything else basically. So it just, the arc revealed itself fairly naturally.
1: Very cool. Very cool. And reading some of the other interviews, the majority of the, of the original animation crew that was with Williams, they were pretty receptive and pretty open to, to doing interviews. Yeah. Um, which one of them was the most fascinating to interview in your opinion?
2: Well, they're all really interesting personalities. I didn't feel like anyone was the same as someone else. Um, They all have their own stories because they come from different parts in their lives and different parts of the world. And, um, you know, they have different jobs and everything. I mean, they're different people, obviously, so they have different stories. Um, One person that really stood out to me was Greg Duffel, the Canadian animator. And he worked at the studio. This was really his... Pretty much his first job in animation. He's from Toronto originally, just like Richard Williams, and he basically got on their radar by sending fan letters to various animators. Um, and eventually one of those letters landed in Williams' lap and he said, you know, we're starting we're revamping this feature. This would have been about nineteen seventy-three, early nineteen seventy-three, so why don't you come over? So he's seventeen years old and he's already the assistant and in-betweener. For um, Ken Harris, you know, like Chuck Jones' best animator, the guy who really helped bring Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner and Coyote and Daffy Duck to life in those, in those cartoons. Uh, his hero, or one of his heroes, essentially. And he's working for him basically on day one. Um, and he's, and Greg's just a phenomenal storyteller. Um, I don't know what it is about Canadian Canadian animators, but they seem to be the best storytellers. Him and 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 Richard Williams and people like John Chris Palusi and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> he he's just such a dynamic storyteller, and it was a real privilege to have him um, sort of share the panel um, uh, at our recent uh, Ontario premiere, the Toronto Animation Festival. That was a real treat to have him on board, and just and just to hang out with him really for hours you know and just talk uh but they were all really great i really don't want to feel like i am going to single just one person out i mean um it was important to get perspectives from people who came there as young people from women from older people from people who were there for you know a year to people who were there for a decade whether they were animators or rendering artists or working on the story you know it was important to get an eclectic mix and really everybody had something special to, to share. They all have a story.
1: Good deal. Good deal. Now, you also said that you got to see a lot of the source material. Some um, did, you, did you get to handle some of the production material, like the physical stuff that they used?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, we got to hold a, a few cells and things. I mean, that was really cool. And just seeing, you know, how um, – and the rough drawings, of course, which are great. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it was kind of amazing. I mean – for lack of a better cliche, we're kind of just looking at the tip of the iceberg, partly because, you know, some of the stuff is either stowed away in some vault or it's just dispersed all over the world with different collectors and animators who managed to salvage this stuff before it was thrown out in the dumpsters, or, um, you know, various... these archival bits in various forms of media, whether they're digitized or not. Um, One animator that um, we met with... um, Ha, said that he had a, a bunch of footage on on uh, umatic tapes um and that he could transfer them for us so i said yeah I'd, I'd love that and it turned out to be about two hours of pencil tests that really no one has seen over oh two gosh. decades yeah no one has seen this stuff in over two decades basically and it dated back some of it to like the late 60s so it was sort of like unearthing this this um treasure trove looking at the fossil record almost you know it's like of um Looking at the fossil record of um, styles evolving and character designs emerging and certain scenes dying off and certain ones coming to life. And it was really fascinating to to pull all this stuff together. And I'm certain there's more out there and stuff that we may never see. But what we managed to find was really incredible.
1: Wow. So it's almost like you were like an animation archaeologist. Yeah. Just kind of coming into contact with this stuff and and being able to interpret it like sure. y- you said something about kind of the evolution of the style of the film. And I think that's really, that was one interesting point that the documentary made, how, um, before the Shaw family took the the rights back from the majority of the characters back when it was, um, and I always get this wrong. Is it Nardu Nazruddin Nazardin. That's right. With Nazardin. And they, they took back the rights for the majority of the characters, minus the thief, which was also very significant. <laughs> um, you see how the characters <clears throat> definitely evolved. Yeah. Um, I like how it turned out in the end. So I, I think taking the rights away was kind of a blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I <laughs> that also explains I, – I, I don't know if you if you can answer this, but um, I watched the recobbled version on YouTube. Yeah. And I'm really grateful that they uploaded it. Oh, it's brilliant. Um, the one and only line that the cobbler speaks was voiced by Sean Connery. Yeah. And it <laughs> – I don't really think it fit the character <laughs> design. The no, exactly. kinda, it kind of took me off guard. Do you think that's left over from the old days when they had an older character, you know, the, the wise fool as the main as the main hero? Do you think it's kind of left off from there?
2: I don't remember when Sean Connery's name first showed up in in like the credits. I remember seeing it on on a press kit that was from like 1980 two or something like that um but it might have been before that um i don't know i mean if it's just one line they could have just re-recorded it i mean i think it's disposable i mean obviously they had to get rid of some stuff it wasn't like you know they had more than enough material um whether it was backgrounds or or voiceover recordings or um you know animation itself or whatever so um i don't know i i think it was just a joke i think it's just richard williams sense of humor i mean obviously it, it doesn't fit i think for williams that's the joke that it's so out of there, you know,
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding, although at, at that point, I think I would have preferred Matthew Broderick's voice for that one last line, but that's it, like maybe oh, but if, if keep, i'm gonna play the rest of it.
2: if I'm going to play devil's advocate, I feel like it might have seemed to he's got such a, a a sweet banal sort of voice that I feel like it would have come across as too sacrament or something, okay, it's already kind of a- i mean this is just me saying that, and I don't know what Williams would say, and maybe he would. I don't know if he would voice anything similar or different, but I don't know. If he, I feel like if you're going to have a character that's essentially like a silent movie actor throughout the movie, but he has to have one line at the end and it's those words, um, I feel like making it a joke maybe is a better move. But I don't know. I mean, it's weird because <clears throat> the the style of the film in terms of tone is also quite amorphous. Uh, you know, there are aspects of it that really are striving to be a big epic film. I mean, Williams wanted it to have like an intermission. He wanted it to be a, a road show. Yeah. Kind of like 2001 A Space Odyssey or Lawrence of Arabia or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Lawrence of Arabia. A big epic, which even by the late and mid-70s was kind of out of fashion. But on the sure. other hand, he also has all these elements that are kind of... He's interested in experimenting with animation in a way that's also very playful. So there are things that are you know definitely inspired by early Disney and certainly the Warner Brothers cartoons. Um... And so, you know, the tone is kind of all over the place, for better or for worse. Uh, it's kind of a, a mishmash of, of elements, and um, I don't know, for, to me that works uh, yeah. okay enough. I mean, it, it makes sense in that universe that Williams is constructed. <clears throat> yeah, good deal.
1: Yeah, and um, I agree that the tone of the, the film and the, the general look of the film is very, well, definitely very epic, especially the recobbled yeah. version, and then you definitely get kind of a silent film kind of feel to the whole thing and then uh, what you said about the uh, the final line of the cobbler reminds me of the oh when did the artist come out was that 2011 and uh, at the end of the film you finally hear the the main hero talk and you you realize why it kind of gives away important plot points you know oh this is why he was struggling with this the whole time you know as a silent yeah. film actor and it kind of reminded me of that, that um, but yeah I've, I never thought of I never considered that it was kind of part of a it was kind of a sense of humor kind of thing Having that one line at the end be just Sean Connery's like, voice that seemed a little out of place. Now, um, how long did this all take? So you, you got all this footage, and you had the task of editing it and forming a, forming a story. How are you going to tell the story, like you said? And then the uh, source material, material that you came across, how long did it take to kind of put it
2: all together? Well, um, the project kind of came on my radar. Um... I think about August or September two thousand seven, when I first got into college. Um, a friend of mine told me about this lost animation epic, and I saw Garrett Gilchrist's um fan edit to the cobbled cut. And I got in touch with Garrett, who of course did a fantastic job and just said, you know, send me everything you have and in doing so he um uh he just you know, that just fueled my own obsession with the story of obsession even more. So that was when research was happening. I, a couple of years later, I started almost exactly two years later, I started emailing people who I knew worked on the film at different points or at the studio at different points in time and saying, would you ever possibly maybe hypothetically consider to being in a documentary about Richard Williams and the thief and the cobbler? And the vast majority said yes. Um and even if they felt that they, weren't, um, that they wouldn't go on record, they still were supportive of the project, uh, and that, was, uh, that meant a lot. So by August 2010, my line producer, uh, Sarah, and I went to London for two weeks, shot the majority of the interviews there. And then in the coming weeks, um, we shot a little bit more in New York and Toronto. Um, and as soon as you start, you've shot enough stuff, you already start editing with a documentary just to see if anything is missing in the storyline. If you need to go back and get footage or just talk to someone else and, and get coverage of, um, uh, of a topic or something that they may have omitted in their interview or that you forgot to prompt. Um, and then it ended up on uh, HD cam, um, and it's final print for the festivals, um, in early September, uh, 2012. And it's kind of just been snowballing at the festival circuit from from there. It's been very surreal, but a huge honor. You know, I've never expected it to go um, to get this sort of recognition at all. To be entirely honest, I really didn't expect it to go to any festivals or really anyone to really see it. But um, people <laughs> people did, and it, it doesn't show any sign of stopping yet. So,
1: yeah, I think that's a and that's definitely a triumph. And I really think it does uh, does well to kind of build awareness about this film. Um, mm-hmm. 'Cause the when you watch the recall version, like you have to be convinced that this really could have been the greatest animated film of all time. Just like once you consider all the work that went into it and like and, you know, and the kind the, the the journey of the film being produced is epic in itself. Just how yeah. long it just the just the, the amount of time it took, how long it was in production. Um and so so again, very good. Very good story you told there. Thank you. Now, um, Richard Williams is the he's the per, definitely the person of interest in persistence of vision. But there's also the story of kind of this tragic tale of a of a, of a giant epic animated film, uh, uh-huh. the Thief and the Cobbler. So, in your opinion, which is the which is the most important story that you told, or is there is is it more about macros and more about the whole story of the two elements?
2: Well, I mean, they're both fascinating, and it's hard to separate the two. Um, Mm -hmm. I think looking at The Thief and the Cobbler is important because, you know, it differed a lot from uh, most studio-made films with a big budget. It was really more of an art project. He wasn't trying to make a Hollywood-style blockbuster. This was his art project that he was toiling over, refining, perfecting. You know, not unlike, I think, a, a painter making their magnum opus or a composer making their greatest symphony. I think he was doing the same thing in a different art form. But in an art form that is in an industry or in a business that has cert- does, does certain expectations and demands or that requires a certain amount of um, resources and, and, and work from other people, involvement from other people, Um and I think also the film itself is important, just because of how it had an impact on the world of animation in general. I mean, you know, having a, a certain distinct style to set the the time or the or the place or the setting of the world that you're trying to create, and obviously the very intricate um, character designs and um, and performance, the level of detail, um, I think, is still something that inspires people to this day. It's an amazing film because because it was started in the sixties and, and 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 was you know, wound up in the 90s. Um, it, it has a timeless quality to it because it covers so much of our time and, and all these influences from, you know, in, in film and in animation and other art forms that it doesn't quite feel like a movie that's stuck in the early 90s or the late 60s. It has a little bit of everything. And I think it still feels like this, this really unique work of art. But um, for me, saying all this stuff inevitably boils down to Richard Williams himself. I think his film was very unique and beautiful, but I wasn't seeking to make my documentary about this, you know, ruined masterpiece and how we should all be sad about that, you know, ultimately. Essentially what held my interest for all this time was I wanted to make a character study. I wanted to make a portrait of a man and of an, and of an artist, you know, even with my limitations, I wanted to try the the best that I could um, to make a three dimensional portrait of someone who was not only an important artist in his respective medium, but also a fascinating and exceptional human being. And for me, you know, that's that human element in the story is at the core of the project. And, I'm, I'm happy to say that that seems to, at least for some people, that seem to translate. I mean, I've had several people come up to me after screenings at festivals and the like saying things along the line of, you know, I never had a previous interest in animation or even in filmmaking, but they still found the story really affecting or riveting. And, um, you know, that means a lot. And uh, I think that's what held my interest, too.
1: Definitely. If Chelsea and, Ma- and Morgan were here, they would agree uh, and I, I agree. the The film was very emotional, especially towards the end, uh, yeah. when you realize kind of the when you get when you get to kind of see the, uh, the I guess we could say the ultimate downfall of the movie. Um, and you also get to kind of digest um, Richard Williams's um, I wouldn't say faults, but maybe weaknesses uh, in management or or just or just downright bad luck. All all the are the all the horrible things that happened with the film that caused yeah. it to. To ultimately um, not be able to be completely released, and that struck emotionally. And we had a really good discussion on Williams himself, and uh, the documentary definitely helped paint that three uh, D three D portrait. Like you said, now uh, in your opinion, you know, coming into contact with people that knew him and the stock footage of him, um, what were some of Williams's best qualities as a producer for *The Thief and the Cobbler*?
2: Well, if you mean a producer in the usual sense um I mean he needed other producers, of course I mean he was produced because he was the one who for from the majority of that time it was an independent film, and so that was coming from really his pockets from doing thousands and thousands of um, um you know commercial assignments um, but you know I think what were his strengths really were, were in that he was able to um, cultivate and galvanize um, a real uh, enthusiasm. Uh, sure, he had a tough love personality and approach to his work ethic and for, and the way he had demands toward um, his staff. You know, as some people even said, you know, in a tyrannical way or oppressive way, you know, if they didn't meet uh, his expectations. But he could also be on the other end of the spectrum, you know, as much as he may criticize and make an example out of somebody um, for doing something improperly in his view, he would also, you know, go crazy in a very positive way if someone did uh, it right. I mean, he'd show everybody, he'd show, you know, uh, the secretaries, the runners, you know, even the postman, if he happened to show up, you know, just saying like, look at what so-and-so drew, look what they did, aren't they brilliant, which was also a way of I think motivating um, others at the studio to, Hey, you know, I want to do that. He seems to like their work, you know? So, um, I think it was his enthusiasm above all that was tremendously contagious. So even people that were starting to see, Oh, you know, this movie may never get finished. I think they still kind of went along for the ride. Most of them until they had a really bad falling out with him, um, because they were gaining something. Um, it was not just a job. Uh, everybody I spoke to, pretty much, uh, whether they had a falling out with Williams or not, whether they were there for six months or ten years, almost everybody I spoke with agreed that one of the most, if not the most important and influential parts of their lives as as an artist was at Richard Williams' studio. And I think that really has to do with his, his impact, uh, you know, his tough love approach, and also... Uh, his, his sincere enthusiasm they all felt it was a special place to be and that it was a special project, and I think that you know that 's something unique to his personality
1: mm-hmm. definitely well, cool, and then you mentioned that, and it 's evident in the film that uh, the animator crew, the animation crew that was with him, um, you know whether through the early days when it was an independent film to when uh, Warner Brothers picked it up, the animators definitely grew. And they uh-huh. were able to really hone their skills being under, um, you could say, the tutelage of, of Richard Williams. We also saw the portion of the documentary where they bring in Art Babbitt, and um, he had a lot to teach them. And so the what I got from it was that it was the studio – Williams' studio was – it was almost like a school for animation in some aspects in that uh, a lot of the interviewees expressed that they, they developed their talents and skills uh, with Babbitt and Williams – uh, during that era, and that it affected their lives. And, you know, like you said, now, how how do you think uh, Williams' experience with the film and how do you think his studio's experience with the film affected the world of animation?
2: Well, um, you know, all those animators coming in after all those years, you know, most of them went out to continue to animate. And sometimes that involved them starting their own studios, like animators like uh, Richard Burdett or Tony White. Um, and some of these studios are still flourishing today, really, and still animating, especially in the UK and in Europe in general. Um, but also in Hollywood. I mean, um, people like uh, Eric Goldberg and Andreas Deja and others, Chuck Gamage, um they continued to animate. Dan Haskett, of course. Uh, so... They had a tremendous influence. I mean, these are people who are still working at Disney and at Pixar and at DreamWorks and all these other places and still using the tools that they got from working with Richard Williams, whether it was on The Thief and the Cobbler or on Who Framed Roger Rabbit or on the numerous commercial works or whatever. Um, and that gets passed down, you know. So you're right. It was like a school. I think that's another thing, which also means a whole lot more work, because in addition to doing your 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 work hours, you have homework at the end of the day, too. So not a whole lot of sleep, but um, a lot no of experience kidding. gained. Yeah, but a lot of experience gained. And I think that that's really where the success of that studio, it's in that legacy that's persisted on uh, and continues to do so.
1: Um, so they, they're basically
2: paid to go to school, <laughs> in a sense. In uh, a way, yeah. Uh, yeah says Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, boot camp, I guess you could also say. But um, yeah, you, you kind of are. Boot camp a very I mean, good term for it. He would – you know, Williams would often recruit young people to kind of have a clean slate as best that he could, you know. um, But that wasn't because he was trying to influence them with his particular style entirely. It was really because he had access to the masters. He was – his philosophy was going back to 1940 and rewinding the clock, you know, uh, back to that time and starting from there starting from what they had figured out in 1940, in the, in the early 30s and early 40s, with animation, all the basics of character movement, and movement and, and, and the illusion of physics and gravity and, and overlapping in action and all these other sort of techniques in animation that people like Art Babbitt and like Ken Harris had. And it wasn't just Ken and Art Babbitt that showed up, other animators, that the, most of the Nine Old Men and uh, other people showed up too. But they showed up the most frequently and were working on the film the most directly, and uh, I think had the most unique relationships with um, with Richard Williams and with the crew in general. So yeah, it, was, it, it definitely had that sort of a, a feeling to it that it was not just it was not just a company and a place to to work. It it kind of became your life because it consumed your life, um, because it had you based on the time. But also, it was contagious that enthusiasm, and that's kind of why you were in the business in the first place—to learn and improve. And you know, it seems like a really special place for all of its flaws. You know, even yeah. for that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Now you had this experience of of making this film, and I'm sure, I'm sure in some parts you used you you'd used your experience as a documentary filmmaker to tell the story. But you also, um, it sounds like it was also some new stuff for you too. Now, as a filmmaker, what have you learned? You know, as far as oh, I don't want to be cheesy and say life lessons, but like, <laughs> what kind of big lessons have you learned from the story of? The Thief and the Cobbler, and this, sorry, the story of its production, not the story in the film because, you know, when you get into the film, you know, the moral I got from it is, you know, you need balls to get ahead or to yeah. succeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so literally and figuratively. Now, um, from the whole story of the production of The Thief and the Cobbler and Williams' story, what what have you learned from it all?
2: Well... It's 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 a little tricky because I think there are things to learn. I mean, obviously budgets matter, schedules matter, Um, but you know hindsight is 2020, and we should learn from the past certainly. But I also feel that there isn't one unique takeaway message. I don't think this functions as a as a parable because you know even though it's about this master artist who didn't get to complete his Magnum opus as he wanted it to be. I don't know if, I don't think it's a story of failure. I think it, most, the most common reaction that I get from people is that it was inspiring, even though it it seems on the surface to be about a failure. Um, So I think really it's, it's, it's not a parable or, or there's one essential moral lesson to, to take away from it. I think it's really, um, just uh, my attempt at examining this unique person with uh, at this unique place at this unique point in time uh, with a unique dream, you know? Uh, So I think that's really what it's about, but I think, you know, what really drew me to it partly was also just that, um, you know, uh, it's relatable in some ways. I mean, obviously I'll never be as talented at anything as he was at, at what he excelled at. But it's relatable in the sense that you kind of have to be a little crazy and a little ambitious and obsessive too to get a project like like that off the ground, certainly for a masterpiece like that. So um and he was his own harshest critic, too. Always toiling over it, always trying to perfect it. He was a perfectionist in the truest sense of the word. So uh, I think it's relatable for a lot of people that work in filmmaking or in the arts in general.
1: Awesome. And um and I, I agree. I don't think ultimately it's about the failure of the film because um, there's kind of a, a little light of hope at the end because uh, the documentary hints at a kind of a super secret project that Williams is producing uh, right now. And when I when I saw that, I I got a little sarcastic and I was like, "Oh brother, this is gonna how long is this gonna take?" <laughs> yeah. You know. But again, the word persistence. You know, I guess it's kind of the rosebud of the documentary. You kind of huh. you get exposed to the persistence of Richard Williams. Uh, even to the very end, because he's still working on stuff,
2: yeah, and I find that inspiring because he hasn't given up it wasn't sure he was heartbroken and devastated uh sure. gestating this baby for over a quarter of a century essentially um and <laughs> Just- then having it taken away and then mutilated but um you know uh, i i he's still he's still animating, he's eighty years old and he's still animating, I think that's. No, it wasn't really about him, I don't think. I really don't think it was about the project even. I think it was just about the art, you know, for him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, um, having produced a film about Williams and his crew and the whole experience of The, the Thief and the Cobbler, uh, I suppose you're not an animator, as you said, but what advice do you have for maybe film students or maybe visual arts students who, who have kind of the same hopes and dreams as Williams? Having gone through the experience of, of filming the documentary, what, what advice do you have for them? If any.
2: Well, it's hard to say because I'm I'm kind of new to the playing field also. Um (laughs) but uh I don't know, I guess budgets matter, schedules matter, and people's feelings matter. Um you know, if people screw up, um, you know, unless it's some malicious intent or complete negligence, you know, they're usually trying. So respect that people can screw up and that they aren't you communicate with them, uh, make it better. I mean, I've had to learn this, of course, from my own projects. I think everyone does who has to work in any capacity on a film, a collaborative effort like that does. Um, And I think also, um, and this is something you can learn from Richard Williams and other people too, uh, is just that, um, yeah, be persistent. And that involves, it doesn't just mean putting your demo reel on Vimeo and waiting for people to flock to you and for the view counts to, to add up. It, it's, you have to, it's an active process. And I'm still in that process myself, of course, but you know, if there's someone whose work you, you admire, send them an email, send them a letter, call them up. I don't know. Um, that's what Williams did to get in touch with the old guys and, you know, and learn from them. I mean, he was the director of a film, several films uh, and projects and the head of a company but he was also a student. Uh, I think he always considered himself a student. So I think you should always have that humility. You should never really be entirely content, I guess. Um, it's always good. Otherwise, you're just going to stagnate. So I don't know. I mean, again, I'm kind of I'm, – I'm new to this world too. But um, I guess what's been working for me and what I think are just good values are keep at it. You know, Don't just wait for things to happen to you. Make them happen as best you can something like that
1: (laughs) no no no, it was very good and and um i think something something and you mentioned you know budgets matter and and management matters and and people management matters we definitely agree like on the podcast we often see i'm i'm an animation student myself i wouldn't consider Mm -hmm. myself an animator but trying to get to that status um Morgan is a, uh, a marketing major who's uh, she's doing that, and uh, Chelsea is an uh, overall appreciator of animation mm-hmm. uh, you know and a music artist and so uh, with the different views on the on the podcast, we often not only talk about the art or the um, you know the, the technical animation and stuff of a film but we also talk about the management side um, you know the marketing side and I think like you said, and I think we'd all agree animation is, is an industry today, and mm-hmm. so you know, if you don't know how to market yourself, you know, if you don't know how to develop your talents, if you don't know how to make the right connections, you, know, you can easily have a lot of talent, you know raw talent and skill, but you might not get the places that you want to go because you don't have to manage yourself or to market yourself. And so the and so your words about you know about budgets and and, and how to treat people in a studio situation or or as a, or in a manager position um, those are really wise words I think uh, visual arts students and prospective yeah. animators and, and filmmakers can definitely you know definitely take in now uh the super secret project do you how did you learn about it and and what can can you tell us anything about it
2: <laughs> well um Richard williams. Richard Williams has hinted at it here and there in a couple of interviews. Um, and apparently it's a project that's even older than The Thief and the Cobbler. Not that he's been working on it since then, but uh, he's had this idea since he was a teenager, I guess. And um, I, I think it's only until recently that if he can pull it off um, as an artist, you know, even post-Thief and the Cobbler, I think that's, it wasn't until after that he realized, okay, now I think I can tackle this. I haven't... Seen any footage of it myself? Uh, I, I spoke with an animator who knows that there's animation of a phalanx of soldiers in a field, which sounds very exciting. Um, and it's apparently just pencil and paper. It's uh, there's no cells, there's certainly no digital elements. I, um, there's no paint. It's just it's just a, a man and a piece of a pencil and some paper, basically bringing these very meticulous precise drawings to life. Williams has said recently that um, he's finished the prologue and that the prologue functions in such a way that if he can't finish the rest of the feature, because, I mean, he is 80 years old, uh, if he can't finish the whole movie, the prologue alone will stand as a short and and can do that. But uh,
1: (laughs) the prologue itself is four hours long. So (laughs) it will be a double feature or it'll be a double release.
2: (laughs) Right, right. Um, well, I think it's just about less than 10 minutes, um, but probably seven or eight minutes. Um, but I, what's interesting is actually when I was editing my documentary, um, and this was late into editing it really, I mean, we were just wrapping up, uh, a lot of the finishing touches. I noticed that in the last shot of my documentary before it cuts to the credits, uh, you can actually see slightly out of focus, some artwork, for this film. Uh, and that was sort of like this crazy little, I guess, Easter egg or something, this hidden thing that I need, I didn't even notice in my own, my own documentary uh, until, well, heck, the, uh, I heck, now I got to go back and see it again. Yeah. Just, it's just, it just for a few seconds, but you can, you can see it. If you, it's, it's long enough that you can get a good sense of what it's going to look like or what it might look oh. like. So all the more reason to check it out, I guess. <laughs> all the
1: more reason to check it out. I tell you what. Yeah. Boy, we're we're gonna. Why? I didn't even catch that. I gotta go back and see it now. Um, well, awesome. Very cool. Well, hey, thank you for your remarks on on the documentary about your views on on Williams and the Thief and the Cobbler, and really cool stuff. Thank you.
2: it's fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, really, really. Now, um, you said that you did you you did you were an intern at DreamWorks Animation. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of work did you do there?
2: well this was four years ago i was in college at the time okay um and uh it was 2009 and i was officially in the post-production department Mm -hmm. but they had already released their only feature of that year which was i think monsters vs. aliens i think that came out in march of 2009 uh and i was there for like the summer months so as a result there wasn't a There wasn't a terribly large amount of work for the interns to do in in post at the time. So I would check in with the post-production department, see if there was anything going on, you know, and I'd work with whatever they had for me. But if they didn't really have anything, this was sort of my opportunity to um, be proactive and uh, and check out what the other departments had to have. So I I was able to kind of, you know, when there wasn't much happening in post, I was able to dabble in a lot of places in, in the big pipeline and, and look at other tasks and and, and and work. Like, I was able to work in editorial, get exposure to the animation department, work in the art department, marketing, research and development. It was a really great opportunity. And I kind of lucked out that summer. And I got to speak with some interesting people, too, you know. Uh, this was a chance to, if I wanted to talk to the production designer, uh, Alex McDowell, or director Steve Hickner, uh, I could uh, send him an email or phone him up and say, Hey, When are you free for lunch? And um, and have a great conversation with them, yeah. And, uh, you know, just talk to them one-on-one as as people for, like, over lunch or coffee or something. So that was really cool.
1: Oh, my goodness. So it sounds like since you were an intern, you basically had access to the studio, like, as a whole. And uh, that is – wow, that's super neat. So tell me about the process of getting an
2: internship at DreamWorks. Well, I mean – I knew a couple of people that worked there, but I kind of had to, I had to go through the same process. It wasn't like they were like, hey, here's this kid. Hire him. Make, make, yeah. make, make sure it happens. I still had to yeah. go through the same application process. Um, and they thought I was good enough or something. And, uh, you know, I, I got in, thankfully.
1: Yeah, good deal. Good deal. Any other comments on the studio environment at DreamWorks?
2: Well, you're going to think I'm like advertising, making a commercial here, and I, and I assure you they're not paying me anymore. We'll, or we'll, we'll add so. a disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> but I really am being entirely sincere when I think, at, at least from where I was coming from as an intern for those months that I was there, uh, it was a really fantastic experience. Uh, there's a reason why there, – well, there are several reasons why a lot of these publications like Forbes and, and the rest rate the company so highly – And part of that is because of the excellent employee morale. I mean, they really take good care of the crew uh, at the studio. It's a nice campus. They've got all these activities and free movie screenings and concerts and things. And, uh, you know, I feel like maybe this is not that abnormal and maybe it's changed. Uh, I I think they're still doing a great job, though. Uh, But... You know, big companies like that, I think, personally, can certainly afford to make their hard-working artists and employees feel welcomed. And I think DreamWorks does a really good job at that, a really great job based on, you know, what I saw there. And, you know, they're making a lot of exciting projects, too. I mean, uh, so, so that's that's really cool.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for those comments. I've always um, – I've talked to people from Pixar and, and other places, but I've never really got, a, never got to hear about how uh, DreamWorks Studio is like yeah so very cool
2: i've heard some people say um again i'm not trying to i'm not trying to sell anything here but i've heard some people say that of all the studios they've worked at the modern big studios in la dreamworks has been their favorite just because of the the working environment and the general attitude uh at least for those reasons but i'm sure that they all have some good points i mean they've got to keep their their you know, on board somehow so yeah
1: yeah definitely well, Kevin, any other last thoughts, comments, or, or uh, you know, tirades, monologues, anything that, anything that you want to add at the, at the end of this interview because we're about to wrap up?
2: Well, um, yeah, certainly monologues. I've been, I've been yammering your ear off here. Um, no, no problem. That's uh, why we're here. Cool. I'm glad because um, it's been fun. Um, if you want to learn, I guess, more about Persistence of Vision, um, there's the Facebook page where we regularly, usually, often daily – post artwork, uh, videos, exclusive content, um, news articles, reviews, and, of course, um, we post uh, regularly the um, screenings that are coming up at various festivals and other venues around the world. I mean, we've it's been doing um, astonishingly well, and, um, you know, uh, that's how to really track down the movie. There's a Facebook page and Twitter account, and um, we'll keep you posted. Hopefully, it's, it's fun to see it in a cinema, so uh, I'd really... Encourage that there's nothing like there's nothing like seeing a movie on a big screen and i think the the animation in um richard williams film the thief and the cobbler and the other stuff he did too pink panther and roger rabbit and uh, there's something really special about seeing that so um you yeah. know for me it's i'm so i'm i'm really thankful that uh, people are uh whether they're you know hardcore you know diehards of this story or animation fans or even if they're just the general public who didn't really have an interest in animation or filmmaking. It really means a lot to hear from all these different people to know that that they found the story effective and affecting and, and gripping. You know that means a lot because you know I, I wanted to share this story in the first place. So yeah, that's my that's my long rambling of just saying thank you. I guess for everyone who's been supportive it means a lot. Yeah,
1: good deal. And thank you so much for taking the, you know taking time out of your week to uh, interview with us. Oh no, um, problem. really appreciate. Uh, having you on here. I learned a lot. I think Chelsea learned a lot listening. And um, uh, oh, she put a little smiley face on the Google Doc I'm reading off of. <laughs> um, uh, we want to thank her for making this interview possible because she has the recording software. And um, also, um, I know I've been asking the questions here, but uh, Chelsea also provided a lot of uh a lot of side questions and and feedback on on our, on the chat on the google doc so it wasn't just me it was a lot of chelsea here too so we want to thank her as well <laughs> thank you and um kevin i want to wish you luck with uh you know the with uh you know the i don't want to say fame um but it <laughs> it, it is getting famous uh. i want to wish you luck with this ongoing experience of uh, the persistence of vision uh i can't say it enough terrific documentary uh very good job and, um, and what we'll do is um, in the show notes for our episode, I don't know if you've been on our website, but we, um, we put like a kind of a summary or like yeah. kind of uh, key points of every episode. And at the end, we'll be sure to leave the Facebook page for the Persistence of Vision and uh, the Twitter handle for Persistence of Vision. I'm sure you'd, you'd rather people go to follow that Twitter than follow your personal Twitter account, but you never know.
2: Well, that's the only Twitter I have. So, um, hey, good. Deal.
1: I, All right. Well, hey, it's been great, and uh, we're gonna have to let you go. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, you know, have a great week, and, and best of luck with the film in the future.
2: You too. Thanks so much, you guys. We really appreciate it.
1: All right. Thanks, amigo. See ya. All right.
2: See
0: ya. That was such a good episode. I'm. I'm really glad we were able to have him on the show.
1: Yeah, me too. It's great to get the opinion of. You know someone who is directly in contact with Richard Williams and and uh, mostly his his animation crew, and then you know all the production material he got to see. I'm kind of jealous.
0: Oh, I'm I so jealous.
1: I don't know if he got to do this, but I would have loved to just unfurled that giant background <laughs> yes. drawing of um, not in, of Baghdad? Baghdad or or the Golden City. You know that that one that was like twenty foot by twenty foot.
0: Yeah. And he insane. was like, "Yeah, we've
1: got this like giant drawing that you have to like takes like five minutes to unfurl, and uh, somehow we're gonna animate this <laughs> again." That's just that's crazy. just ridiculous. So yeah, um, this would be a good complementary material or supplementary material, however you want to do it. Yeah, it's um, a
0: lot of the things that we didn't know, but and that's really cool because I there's a lot of different things that I just just boggled my mind i love the fact that he said like some of his some of the animators that were in the documentary got to go and work with you know all these amazing all these legendary animators uh just because of a fan letter like how cool is that
1: yeah real cool real cool
0: i just kept thinking wow the power of appreciation right there
1: well, it kind of it, it reminds me of our experience like as a podcast, like we really come into contact with a lot of th- with a lot of these people like through Twitter, email, not really Facebook, but but those kind of electronic media, which are basically the fan letters of today. It's true. I bet I bet you know animators and directors get a lot of annoying fan mail, but uh, and I'm sure that makes them all the more appreciative you know what what do you have any suggestions? Can we meet? can we talk? And so I think the big lesson here is that, um, one to have persistence in developing your talents, but also, um, appreciating the, the greats that are around you and, um, making a, making an effort to reach out to them because like today, like, you know, you send out an email or like a tweet, you know, trying to get a, an interview or, or trying to, you know, uh, ask some que- bounce some questions off of an animator, or a director, like what's the worst that can happen? They're going to say, no, you know, they're not going to like banish you to. They're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna like berate you or like yell at you. They're just gonna say no. And if they say yes, then you're gonna have an awesome experience. So
0: right, and also like today, I feel like there's so much negative talked about. Like people think it's cool to be negative and to like be like, well, <laughs> <to> meh, make... <laughs> meh, right? When uh, there's just it's like there's just so much more that gets done when they're when you're positive and you appreciate people like. Anybody who like says all these different things, well, they should have done this, da 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 da. And then if they were ever actually to get a chance to talk to those people, they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is awesome, this is awesome, this is awesome, and it's like their opinions totally change in that moment. So it's like I just realized that it would be incredibly awesome to talk to these people who actually get things done. So yeah,
1: really inspiring. So really cool interview.
0: For sure. Well, once again, thanks for joining in with us this week. Our next episode is actually a fan-voted episode, and it is the wonderful... Drumroll, please. Meet the Robinsons. (laughs) Okay, so now you know. Everybody has their assignment. Go ahead and watch Meet the Robinsons. It's going to be a great time. And after you watch it, then go and send us a voicemail. That is your job. For voicemail, you can go to therotoscopers.com slash voicemail. Make sure you get those in in the next couple of days. That'd be awesome. For show notes and more, head on over to therotoscopers.com slash podcast. Or you can head on over to therotoscopers.com slash 45 for the direct link to this episode. You can find Mason at MasonSMTX, like San Marcos, Texas. On Twitter, you can also find me on Twitter at Chelsea Robson. You can also check out my website, which is chelsearobson.com. Which you know, at the moment, leads to my Facebook. But hey, you never know when something might pop up. Morgan Stradling, you can find her at Morgan Stradling on Twitter as well. We got lots of fun times. Head on over, check us out. Follow the Rotoscopers on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Facebook, everywhere you can find the Rotoscopers. Follow us. Also, check out the YouTube. We got lots of good stuff coming out there.
2: You fans are
0: amazing. We will see you later. Once again get us your voicemails. (laughs) Okay, bye everyone!